Amen. Thank you, Ike. Uh, if you're visiting with us this morning, welcome. We're glad that you can be here. I know that there's some parents because of homecoming in the area, as well as other people who are traveling through, and we're glad that you can be here. Uh, my name is Stephen. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, Dr. Sayer started the service this morning talking about these moments that we sometimes have in our life, and, and I want to give a title to some of these moments, and let's call them Pivotal Moments. Moments in which after they occur, everything is different. Now, there are certain types of pivotal moments that are unexpected, possibly undesired, that that happen and everything changes from that moment on. Those aren't the moments we're going to be talking about this morning. I want to think about those different moments in our life where you have been eagerly waiting for it to happen. It finally occurs and everything changes is different. Uh, Thinking back to maybe when you were a kid, maybe you had older siblings or cousins, and they were all going to school, and you had that desire that you wanted to start school. And everyone who has already done that is like, why would you have that desire? But at that moment, we have this desire, and we're like, no, I want to go to school. I want to be like that. And you're waiting for that first day of school until it finally arrives and everything is different after. Maybe it's, it's later on, you've grown older and it's when you're finally old enough, it's that birthday that means you can now get your permit. Or it's that driver's license you've been working hard to get and you finally pass the test and you have keys to a car that you can finally be free and go drive. Maybe it's further on in life and it's a graduation The last day of school, maybe high school, uh, college, maybe a graduate level with a master's or doctorate degree, and you've been looking forward to when you finally turn in that final project, you get to get that diploma and it's done and it changes the rest of your life. For others of us, it might have been marriage. Looking forward to that time. There's a number of you here who are engaged and and you're already counting down the days. Looking forward to that time when you can finally have that wedding ceremony that will change the rest of your life. Maybe it was a child. You found out. You waited nine months and then from that point forward. All of these are examples of these pivotal moments that something that we've been looking forward to, we've been eagerly anticipating, and then when it finally happens everything's different. This morning, we're going to be considering a pivotal moment within the marvelous redemptive story God is telling. It's a moment that is crucial to our understanding of God's redeeming work, to understanding the means, his means of accomplishing the mission God has given to us. It's crucial for us to comprehend in order to understand the establishment of the church. This people... As we look back at this pivotal moment that we're going to see of Pentecost at chapter 2 of Acts, when the Holy Spirit comes, I hope that what we experience is that we are utterly in awe at the majesty of how God perfectly unfolds his perfect plan. Then I hope that in that place of awe and majesty, that we can move out with that encouragement, motivated to take action and join in God's great work. That's what we've been seeing in Acts. Take heart, take action. We're going to be encouraged in seeing how this perfect plan comes together in the first four verses. And then from there, 
we want to be motivated to take action. Because this pivotal moment leads and launches a powerful movement. Here's our big idea. God provides the Spirit so that in His power, we would proclaim Christ. This is a powerful moment. This is a pivotal moment. God provides his spirit. Why? So that in his power, we would proclaim Christ. Let's jump into our passage, Acts 2, starting with verse 1. These first four verses, what we're going to see is this pivotal moment. Let's look in, starting in verse 1. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. I've mentioned this pivotal moment. This pivotal moment that we're going to be seeing is what God, Christ, has already promised his disciples. He told them this was going to happen soon. The power of the Spirit. You will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And here it's happening. What are we seeing right at the beginning? It says that the disciples are all together in one place. For sure, this includes at least the 12 apostles. It's possible it also includes the 120 disciples that were mentioned in chapter 1. But all of these disciples are together in one place. Why are they doing that? Let's just try to jump into the story, remember some of the details. Is Jerusalem a safe place to be a disciple and follower of Christ? What just happened... 52 days, 53 days earlier to the leader of this movement. They crucified him. After that, when he comes back to life, what, what's the rumor that's being spread among the people regarding these disciples? Hey, they came in and stole the body. And, and who did they steal it from? Roman soldiers. Do you think that's a ru rumor that Roman soldiers like going around? Yeah, here are these Galileans. They came over, they knocked us out, and they stole a body we were commissioned to protect. That's not a great look. So whether you're Jewish leaders or the Roman Empire, being a disciple of Christ right now is not a good idea in Jerusalem. If I'm one of the disciples, I'm doing what they did in the garden. I'm running. But why are they staying? Well, what did Christ tell them? He told them, wait and pray. Last week, uh, Ted was, was talking to us and, and he mentioned that this is one of the hardest actions a Christian is ever called to do. Wait and pray. And Jesus said, soon, but that's a relative term, especially when a thousand days is as a one day to the Lord. Like a thousand years is, is compared to one day. That's a relative term. And, and he says soon, and they don't know when this is going to happen. They've waited 10 days. You know, that first day, imagining like, okay, Jesus said to wait. It's coming soon. Second day, you know what? We had to wait three days for, for the resurrection. You know, maybe, maybe tomorrow, three days, a week. A week and a half. They know this big mission is here. They know in, in, in verse uh, chapter 1, verse 8, that they're meant to be a wit God, Christ's witness. They're meant to go out among the world from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. They're meant to do that, but they're waiting in a dangerous place. But we see that they have obeyed. 
Another thing that Ted mentioned last week was there is nothing greater you, can, you and I can ever do than trust in God when it doesn't make sense. Now, looking back, it makes sense. But in the moment, they didn't get it. They're still waiting. They're still praying. But it's about to make sense. Look at verse 2. They're waiting praying, then look at the word used at the beginning of verse 2, how Luke brings out these details. And suddenly, pivotal moment, something big's about to happen. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. I love the descriptive way in which Luke writes, that he gives us these details as he gathers in all of the accounts from different people. He's like, hey, tell me what it was like. We were there. We were sitting in this room. And then just this wall of sound hit us, this rushing wind. My house uh, is, I don't know exactly why, but for some reason where I'm at, it's just like this wind tunnel. And, and we have the most fantastic windstorms come through our house. And, and thankfully, I just talked to my neighbor who had multiple dead trees right along my, my fence because they, a couple trees had already fallen in my yard and, and thankfully he cut them all down. But because these massive winds come through, we'd be in bed late at night and you would just hear all of a sudden, and it would just hit the house and you feel the house kind of shake a little bit. It's starting to creak. I'm, I'm going to venture a guess that it's nothing compared to what they heard here. To all of a sudden have this presence. Uh, wind and, and, and spirit, are uh, you, they have the same root in Greek. When, when we're talking about spirit, that, the root of that word is the same root of the word wind. And so it's often used when we're talking about uh, the Holy Spirit. John, uh, Jesus does it in John 3. And here we see this picture of the power of, of arriving. But it's not just what they hear, it's also what they see. Look at verse 3. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. In a little bit, we're going to unpack some of the connections of this fire that we see here. But right now, I just want you to visualize. The whole house shakes. This majestic and awesome wind fills every corner of the house. And then, then if you're there, you look up and on the people around you, you start seeing something that you have never seen before, haven't seen since. It looks like there's fire sitting above each person. You see this power that something new is occurring. It's a new moment. There is a pivot in everything that you have known before. This is changing right before your very eyes. But now there's a new sound. Maybe the wind dies down and you hear something that that doesn't seem to make sense. Verse four, and they were filled, all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. It's not the sound of wind, it's the sound of voices, the voices of disciples, people you have known for the last few years, you know what they're capable of. It's not like, I had, you know German? I didn't know you know, knew German. Wait, you know how to, like, 
They know each other. The, the, the crowd that's coming in the next part of the passage, they didn't. They're like, well, this seems confusing because these, this is a bunch of Galileans. The people in this room, they know each other. They're like, wait a second, Peter, I know you don't know how to speak that Latin. I, I know that. And they're hearing them speak these other languages. It's a demonstration of the power that is now being through them. Why? Because they are filled with the Holy Spirit. But there's a temptation here to, to focus all on the tongues part, and we're going to talk a little bit more about that. But, but what's the main miracle that's happening here? They're filled, and they're speaking as the Spirit gave them utterance. The Holy Spirit is guiding fallen followers. People who up to this point are wondering how on earth is this going to happen? We're looking ahead and we're seeing the obstacles. We look back, we remember the obstacles. How on earth are we going to accomplish what Christ commissioned us to do to be his witnesses? And they're starting to see this power right here. Can you even imagine what this was like? If we were there, if we saw and experienced this, do you think we would consider this a pivotal moment in our lives? It is. It was. And the fact is, this is part of our story. It is a pivotal moment in our lives because from this point on, everything is different. I want to help us to kind of dive into a little bit more of these first four, uh, four verses to, to uh, develop it a little bit more. See, this moment isn't just a miracle or sign. This moment profoundly impacts the rest of history and it greatly impacts us. Before I jump into some of the profound connections we find in this section, I, I need to offer just a few caveats. First of all, I am merely scratching the surface. The amount of connections here to God's redemptive plan and what he's doing are astounding. This week as I was studying it, it felt like every third minute I was like, oh man, wait, there's this whole other connection I hadn't even seen before. And it was so encouraging to see how God's plan perfectly comes together. We're not going to go through all the connections, partially because I don't even see or know all the connections. And I'm looking forward to the day when we can and finally will see all the connections. But we're going to see some of them. But the other caveat is I'm not expecting you to remember all of this. The goal here is not for you to learn all of the different information here. What I want us to be is overwhelmed. I want us to stand in awe of a God who orchestrates, who puts all of these pieces, this mystery that was hidden for ages, and he brings them together and makes it clear. So let's go through some of these. One of the first connections is when this happens. It says that this is Pentecost. Well, what is Pentecost. Pentecost is one of the three main festivals within Jewish culture. And each of these uh, primary feasts highlighted a different element of Israel's history and God's powerful work. The first of the feasts is Passover, where we see God's, re where we remember God's redeeming work out of Egypt, where he bought them out. He brought them out of a land of captivity. In Pentecost, also known as the Feast of Weeks, 
we see God's provision for his people because people were meant to celebrate the harvest that they were receiving. That when they got to the new land and they brought in this harvest, they were supposed to celebrate God's provision. The final feast was the Feast of Booths where God's, what they remembered and celebrated God's dwelling with his people in the tent in their wilderness wanderings. Now, Pentecost happens seven weeks and a day after the end of Passover. One of the elements that we, we see as we're going through scriptures, how these things are connected. How does God bring the picture of Passover, the redemption out of captivity in the Old Testament and show us that was just a glimpse of the greater redemption, the greater work in which I rescued out of captivity in the New Testament. Easter where Christ is the sacrificial lamb, where his blood is spilled for the sake of his people so that those who place their faith in him are passed over. The wrath of God is absorbed in Christ and it is, they are covered. We see that picture of redemption. Now, one of the elements, um, I, this was, some of this information was new to me, knowing all the different elements of the festival. During Passover week, there's multiple different parts to the ceremony. At the end, on the Sunday, at the very end, what they would offer is the first fruits of barley. They would bring that into the sanctuary. They would celebrate that God had brought the first harvest, which is barley. Later is the harvest of wheat. And they would celebrate that God had brought that. That word first fruits is not one that we often use, but it's a biblical term. And we see it a lot in scripture. First fruits is, is the first time. It's the first fruit of the ground. Now, that was offered on Sunday in the sanctuary. What, what's the significance of that for us? Who do we see, who does scripture point to as being the first fruits? Christ. What happened on that Sunday when first fruits were offered? How do we call that? What do we celebrate on that Sunday? Easter. The resurrection. The first of its kind in the sanctuary. And so here we see this picture that then seven weeks after in a day, so 50 days, that's why it's Pentecost, they were to celebrate God's continued harvest. Now they're celebrating the harvest of wheat. What's the significance that God then chooses that this is the moment when the Holy Spirit's going to come? The first is a theological significance. It's the significance of first fruits. Because we see that Christ is the first of his kind. And that therefore, because of what he has done, we then get to experience the same thing. Look at 1 Corinthians 15. We have it on the screen. But in fact, Christ has, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. When did that happen? That Sunday of Passover when those first fruits were first offered. But then verse 21, for as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. How do we have confidence of that? Because we have received the Holy Spirit. 
Do you see the beauty of how God's plan comes together? That he has these images in the Old Testament that were still unclear to us. And now in the New Testament, we get to see how these come together. But there's another connection, not just a theological, there's even a historical connection. During this time, uh, the, the Jews would celebrate not just God's provision, but when they would celebrate Pentecost, they would celebrate it as an anniversary of a significant event in the Old Testament. Do you know what, significant, what event? When, Christ, when, when God descended on Mount Sinai and gave his law. When he demonstrated the law of the covenant. And there's so many similarities between these stories. If you look at uh, Exodus 19, the timeline that it says and how much time has passed between leaving from Egypt, from the first Passover, and now when they're arriving at Sinai, it's 50 days. It's right, right around there. And so the Jews started looking at this and celebrating this time of Pentecost as the time in which God descended and gave his law. Well, what significance does that have for us? In Jeremiah 31... God promises that he will establish a new covenant. But at that point, will the law be written on tablets of stone? No. What does Jeremiah 21, 33 say? For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And so what we're seeing here is not just the theological significance of Pentecost with the first fruits. We're also going to see a practical impact soon with how all the people are gathered. We, here we see this historical significance that now as the Jews are celebrating God's giving of his word, the law, we as the church celebrate that God has written his law on our hearts. Why? Because that's the work the Holy Spirit does. See how God's plan is coming together. Something that he started thousands and thousands of years before. One of the other profound connections is we see this, this picture of fire. Within the Old Testament, fire often represents God's presence. What stories can we think of? Can anyone think of a burning bush? Moses comes and, and God says, this place is holy. God's presence is there. Later, the one that we just talked about, Mount Sinai. How do the people that are surrounding the mountain recognize that God's presence has descended? There's fire. When the tabernacle is consecrated and then later when, when the temple itself is consecrated in both occurrences at the end of Exodus and also in Chronicles, fire descends. We are seeing in this passage, God's presence is here. But I want to point out two incredible shifts from what we see here in Acts compared to what we have seen throughout the Old Testament. The first incredible shift comes in regard to one of the most fundamental truths regarding fire. Now, I'm, I'm just going to light this real quick. And, and I recognize this is the most pitiful example of fire. I asked one of our deacons if I could do a fire pit with wood and gasoline, and he said no. Uh, so you can talk to Bill about that later. But we have fire. Now, now, even just regularly, we understand certain elements about fire. Fire uh, offers warmth. Fire offers light. It's beautiful, but fundamental to fire. There, there's, there's one thing that we all know, and it's what we teach our kids from a very young age. What don't you do with fire? You don't touch it. 
Why? Because fire consumes. Fire burns. Is that a fitting picture for God? Yes. God's holiness consumes. In every one of those examples that we said earlier, if we see God's presence, we see a picture in which there is a barrier. Second Chronicles 7, when, the fi- when Solomon is praying to, to consecrate this new temple, it says that fire came down from he- heaven and consumed the burnt offerings and the sacrifices and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. And then what does it say? And the priests could not enter the house of the Lord. Because the glory of the Lord filled the Lord's house. This fire kept them away. Later, we see the same reality when God's presence descends on Sinai. These are God's instructions to Moses in Exodus 19. And be ready for the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. And you shall set limits for the people all around saying, take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. Jumping to verse 18. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like a smoke of a kiln and the whole mountain trembled greatly. Even if we go back to the very beginning of the Bible, after Adam and Eve have sinned, God pushes them out of the garden and what guards the way? He drove out the man and and at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword and turned that every way to guard the way to the tree, tree of life. God's fire is his presence, but it is a consuming fire. Beyond those examples, we see the examples of sacrifices, the atoning sacrifices, the sacrifices that were meant to be a covering of sins that were pointing forward to Christ. What happened to those sacrifices? They were burned completely. Utterly consumed. So what's surprising here in our passage? The fire, God's presence is here, but what's not happening? They're not consumed. This is different. This is a pivotal switch. But beyond that, where did we always see the fire in the Old Testament? It was always in a place. It's always, it's guarding the garden. It's on a bush. It's over a tabernacle. It's over the temple. It's on the sacrifices. Where do we never see the fire of God's presence? On people. Where do we see it now? On his followers. Do you see this profound connection, this profound pivotal movement that what we are seeing, that now God's presence is on God's people and it's not consuming them. Why? Because Christ was the perfect sacrifice that was consumed for our sake. Because he absorbed the wrath Because now we are robed in his righteousness, we can have God's presence and not be consumed. No longer do we need to do a pilgrimage to a place. God is with us. This unconsuming 
presence is necessary because God has chosen that his followers would be his chosen means of proclamation. This is the commission we found back in chapter one. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria to the end of the earth. What is the first thing that happens once the disciples are filled with the Spirit? Because this is what it was necessary to happen. They began to speak. What are they saying? What the Spirit leads them to say. Do we see another profound connection here? The significance of this, this privilege of being a mouthpiece of the Lord to be guided by the Spirit, to speak the words of the Spirit. Who was that reserved to in the Old Testament? A precious few. Few people ever experienced this. But we now are a royal priesthood, a holy nation those who are chosen by God, equipped for every good work that he prepared beforehand through the power of the Spirit. We have this great privilege. But more than just the privilege of compared to the Old Testament, it's also the pattern of our Savior. In the Gospels, Christ regularly reveals that he speaks as the Father leads with the Holy Spirit, we can now follow that same pattern. As the disciples are filled, they speak as the Spirit gave them utterance. One of the principles and patterns for us to see here is that those who are full of God cannot help speaking about God. Look what happens. They receive this power. First thing they do, they begin speaking. We're going to see in verse 10, what are they speaking? The mighty works of God. Do you see these profound connections that are here? All of this is coming because God is a promise-keeping God. He told them this was going to happen. What did Jesus say? Wait! John the Baptist, he baptized with you with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. The, The significance of that is seen also in what happens to Christ. How did Christ begin his ministry? In a moment that demonstrated his identity and commissioned him. Christ is baptized. The Holy Spirit descends. And what is said? This is my beloved son. And then he goes out and begins his ministry. What happens for us? When we receive, because we don't receive the Spirit in the same way here, this is a pivotal moment. For us, this moment of receiving the Spirit happens at our salvation. And what happens? We receive the Spirit. The Spirit descends on us. And what does that mean? We are his beloved sons. And what goes happens from that point forward, that pivotal moment? We are commissioned to be his witnesses. All of these connections are right here in this passage. This is for us. This is not meant to only just be a great motivation for us, a comfort for us. It is meant to motivate us to go forward. Before we move on to the second part of our passage, how should we respond to this? As we've been going through Acts, we've talked about two goals, two transformations that should happen in our lives. Take heart and take action. These first four verses should help us take heart. Why? 
because of the majestic and awesome way we see God perfectly causing his perfect plan to come to fruition. Take heart at the majesty of God's unfolding plan. Look at what he's doing. Look at all the connections that we've just barely scratched the surface of seeing how he makes this happen. I'm just going to give a quick aside. Uh, You might be here and you're unconvinced regarding the trustworthiness of God's word. I just want to encourage you to read the scriptures. We live in an era right now where we have more resources at our disposal than any other era. And we have people who make more money than makes sense to develop these stories and these ideas and to write and to produce all of this. It's a billion dollar industry. They have all of the resources, all of the technology. And yet, you would be hard-pressed to find anything that's produced without error, without plot holes, with all of these things. This is a book written over thousands of years in different languages with different authors. And yet every page screams of the connections that we see from one page to the next, from beginning to end. If you think that this can be produced by man, there's no way. This is produced because of exactly the power that we see in this passage. The Holy Spirit who carried along the authors as he breathed out in them. So if you're at a point where you're like, I just don't know, I just encourage you, study it. See these connections that no mind, no human intellect could produce this. Let's move on. So as we've observed this pivotal moment, as we have seen the connections and preparations that God ordained leading to this moment, the question we might ask is, why? Why has God planned and orchestrated everything to this moment? In order that Christ might be proclaimed. Christ provides the Spirit so that in his power, we would proclaim Christ. God provides the spirit that through his power, a redemptive movement could explode and move out, reaching the end of the earth. That's what we're going to observe through the rest of Acts, through the rest of the New Testament, through the rest of this age until Christ returns. God gave the spirit so that Christ might be proclaimed. So let's see this powerful movement looking at verse 5. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. I I want you to again see the providence of God in planning, in preparing, in what's happening. Why are all these people here? The rest of the passage gives this list. And if you look through, if you have maybe a study Bible with a map, all of these people, that's the known world. Everyone from the known world is here right now for this pivotal moment. How did that happen? Because God told them to celebrate Pentecost thousands of years before. He had it all planned. He had it all prepared. All of these people are here. The significance of this is we're getting a foreshadowing, a glimpse of what he said the mission was in verse 8 the end of the earth and he has brought the ends of the earth right here to hear this message why do they then gather not just in Jerusalem but in the place probably the temple court they heard the sound 
They heard this sound, first this rushing wind, and then they hear something that is utterly confusing to them. They were amazed and astonished, saying, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? The, uh, the reputation of Galileans is not that they were the smartest of the bunch, right? These, these were not like, Galilee was not the heart of philosophy. When, when Paul later is going to travel to Athens and talk about all these things, and that's not Galilee. Who are these guys? How are we hearing? Look, look at all the list of languages that they're, gonna, they're speaking. How is that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. God's works are being proclaimed here. There's a connection that we want, that you might be thinking as you're hearing this story. And, and, and maybe you're thinking of another story in the Old Testament where, that we have languages and maybe some confusion. But this is different. Stephen preached a, a few weeks back on, on talking about God intervening. In, in the story of humanity. And he intervenes in Babel and he spreads them out and he confuses their tongue. The languages are different. They are dispersed. Why were they dispersed? Whose name were they trying to make great? Their own. Whose kingdom were they building? Their own. And God graciously said, no, no. Because if you do this, then you're going to do everything that you set your mind to. And what you set your mind to is not good. For your sake, I'm going to stop this. In our passage, we don't see a reversal of Babel. We see a redemption of Babel. Why? Because now God gathers in and he removes this, this barrier that was languages. For what sake? so that the true kingdom could be proclaimed, so that his name could be made great. This is a redemption of Babel. This is God saying, no, there is a kingdom to unite over. There is a word and something to proclaim. There is something that would cause us to lift our eyes to heaven. It is the mighty works of of God. Now, the response of the people is not exactly what we might expect. expect. I mean, some of it is. They're confused. All were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others mocking said they are filled with new wine. This is one of the, the hard realities that we need to understand. God calls us to faithfulness God calls us to proclaim Christ. That does not guarantee results. Not all of the people. There is a fantastic result at the end of this passage we're going to see next week when we see the rest of Peter's message. The end of this passage is awesome. But even here, there is an element in which they're saying, no, you guys are drunk. I'm really not sure the logic of that. I, 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 don't, I haven't really hung out with drunk people much anyways, but I've never seen someone then speak a different language that they didn't know before. Like, oh, that makes sense. Oh, yeah, I, I didn't, you didn't know German, but 
you were drunk, so that makes sense. Petra, German that easy? No, I don't think so, right? It takes a lot of time to learn how to, to, how to speak, and just drinking something is not going to do that. And plus, so, so what's going on? Even though they're seeing the power of God, even though they are hearing God's word proclaimed, that does not guarantee the result because that is something that only God can do. But we're seeing God's power displayed here. God's power in preparation. He brought the people together. The Spirit's power in proclamation. He's working through these people so that they can speak different languages. We see this connection to the Old Testament of Babel, that Babel is not, rede- is not reversed, but it is redeemed. God provides the Spirit so that in his power, we would proclaim Christ. This pivotal moment is leading to a profound movement. And we understand this principle that when we act in God's power, it does not guarantee that he will, that he will be accepted, but rather it does guarantee that when we act in his power, he will be glorified. And that's the main goal. When we act in his power, he is glorified. But now let's look and see some of this proclaimed truth. We, we first start with Peter's defense. Peter, but Peter, standing with the 11, lifted up his voice and addressed them, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words, for these people are not drunk as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. Here's what I want you to notice first. What were they doing when they were in the house at the beginning of the passage? They were praying, they were waiting, but then physically it describes something they were doing. They were sitting, but then they received this power, this encouragement, this element to take heart. And where do we see them now? Standing firm, proclaiming Christ. And we are going to see that pattern throughout the rest of the book. We don't see them sitting down again. They are going to be standing firm, walking, moving. What we saw in Colossians, they will be walking by faith, walking in a manner worthy of the God who saved them. Peter tells them, this is not drunkenness. It's the third hour of the day. That's nine o'clock. They're not drunk. Again, still not really sure why that's a theory that people had, but it was their theory. Now that's not what's happening. What Peter says is that this is a prophetic word fulfilled. There's three elements of this prophecy that that, uh, we're seeing coming out of Joel. This first element of the prophecy is the inclusion that the Spirit offers. The second part is the confirmation. And then the last part is redemption. We're going to just look at those, real th- those three real quickly. Look at what it says. First, the inclusion. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy and your young men shall see visions and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and my female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. Peter begins, or the prophecy begins, in the last days. That sometimes is a term that might confuse us because we've been in the last days For a long time. The last days are everything from this moment forward. It is when Christ and God have accomplished everything they said they would accomplish up to this point. We are in the last days. When you look at scripture, you're going to come across these terms. That's now. Now, where we can sometimes be confused by that is think last days mean short days. Understand that that is how the disciples acted. 
they acted as if Christ's return was imminent. It was coming soon. They weren't trying to guess the time. Jesus told them again, that's not for you to know, but they were acting as if it's happening right away. But these last days are this era, this age in which we find ourselves, in which we are still waiting for that final marvelous day that we see at the end of this prophecy when Christ returns. But look at what the inclusiveness that we see of Christ, of God pouring out the Spirit. What would the the disciples, the Jews in that time imagine? Okay, well, based off of the Old Testament, only a few people are going to receive this Holy Spirit. It's only going to be for a little bit of time. It's only going to be in this way. What do we see? Look at this. Gender. Your sons and your daughters. Age. Young men, old men. Social status, even the servants. How does it say at the beginning? I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. What a promise. What a fulfillment. What a pivotal change. We move on to then seeing the confirmation and it says, and I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. Now, some of these signs and wonders have already come. Throughout the book of Acts, when, when, Christ, when Christ was here in the Gospels, in the, in the book of Acts, we see many signs and wonders. What, what, what is the purpose of a sign? It's meant to confirm the message. Now, we won't see those same things now because we don't need to because his word has been confirmed. We have this. This is what Peter says in 2 Peter. We have something more fully assured. We have a greater assurance. God's holy word. But we're going to see these signs and wonders. We're going to see them as we go through Acts that confirm these. Some of these things are still to happen before the day of the Lord, that magnificent day. I just want to give a quick warning, though. Some of these things that are described here don't seem magnificent. The sun shall be turned to darkness. The moon to blood. That day is not magnificent for everyone. That day in which Christ returns and he establishes his perfect eternal reign forevermore is a magnificent day for those who are in Christ. It is a glorious day in which we see finally the perfection, the finality of what he has always spoken and proclaimed. But if you are not in Christ, that day should strike terror in your heart. Because there is a consuming fire that you do not want to be in. The consuming fire in which his Holy Spirit has cleansed us and sealed us is a blessing. The fire of God's wrath is not where we would ever want anyone to be. But there's hope. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. This passage ends proclaiming Christ. 
What is the reason God gives, provides the Spirit? God provides the Spirit so that in his power, we would proclaim Christ. If you're here this morning, the pivotal moment for us, the pivotal moment when the Spirit is given to us is the moment of salvation. That is the moment that allows us to have the indwelling, to have God's presence rest on us without consuming us. But if that pivotal moment has not yet happened in your life, you have not placed your faith in Christ alone for the salvation of your sins, then that consuming fire is coming, but it will burn. The response, if you are in that condition, is that you must call upon the name of the Lord to be saved. So what's our personal response to all of this? We talked at the beginning of different pivotal moments in our life of when we have, whether it's a a wedding or maybe it's something that you're looking forward to. Those pivotal moments lead to profound differences in our life. What if they didn't? What if you waited so long to finally get that license, you passed the test, and then you never drove again because it terrified you? What if you finally turned in that final paper, you graduated with honors, you did everything, you learned what needed to learn, but rather than going out and using what you learned, you say, next semester, I'm just going to start again from freshman year and do it all again. What if you planned and prepared for that wedding day? It finally happened. You said, I do. And then you said, farewell. I'm going back to my house. You go to your house. We'll live as single people. What if for nine months you've been looking forward to this baby and you leave it at the hospital? That's not unfortunate. That's a tragedy. What if God poured out his Holy Spirit and gave it to the church and believers and it was never used and Christ was never proclaimed. That's not unfortunate. That's a tragedy. God has poured out his Spirit. God has provided the Spirit so that in his power we would proclaim Christ. Now, my goal is not to discourage us and to make us feel guilty and shame here because I don't think that's the tone that Luke's writing in. Luke's encouraged. Luke's thrilled with what he's seeing. So for us, if you're at that place and you're like, I'm not doing what I need to be doing, welcome to the club. Take heart. How? How should we take heart? Why should we take heart? Because God is a promise-keeping God. He said that he would pour out his spirit. He said that we would receive power. He said that the spirit would guide believers and convict sinners. And the spirit does. Take heart because God is a promise-keeping God. Take heart because God sovereignly accomplishes his plan. Do we see the majesty in just this small but pivotal moment? Do we see how God orchestrated all the details to reveal his glory? Whatever small clarity in which we can perceive the intricacy and majesty of his plan, know that it is far more amazing, far more majestic, far more awesome. Take heart because God sovereignly accomplishes his plan. The plan that was established before even time itself began right now is unfolding before our very eyes. Take heart because of God's provision. God gave the disciples everything they needed. God even prepared the first audience. Take heart 
because God provides. Take heart because of God's power. It's his power. We are tools in his hands, but we are tools that are useless unless we are empowered by him. Praise God, he provides that power. Take heart because of God's power. So why do we take heart? Because God keeps his promises, because God accomplishes his plan, because God provides, because God is powerful. Do you see the pattern here? This will never fail because it's not built on me or you. It's built on a firmer foundation because of God's plan, because of God's promises, because of God's provision, because of God's power. That's why we can take heart. If you're hoping to take heart because of your own efforts, you will be discouraged. But when we see what God is doing, we can be greatly encouraged. But when we truly take heart in God, what should that then produce? It should cause us to take action. What's the action we are meant to take? What is the intended response Luke hopes that this book will produce? That we would proclaim Christ. God provides the spirit so that in his power, we would proclaim Christ. This is our mission. This is our role. We are his witnesses. We are messengers sent out into the world to proclaim him. Now I'm just gonna confess something here. Something that both shames and scares me. I think this is one of my greatest weaknesses as your pastor. I'm, I'm, I'm just gonna be honest. I struggle with this element of proclamation. And I don't mean here on Sunday. We, we strive every Sunday to proclaim who Christ is. I struggle to leave the room and go proclaim to those who will still be consumed by by fire. And one of my greatest fears is that my weakness is going to become your weakness. And so I'm here looking at this passage, and I'm, I'm trembling before God's presence saying, God, work in my heart. Don't let this be a weakness. You have given me a role. You have given me a mission. Let me... Use this power that you have poured out on me to proclaim Christ to those who are still destined to a consuming fire. This is what I'm looking to, how I'm looking to apply this personally. And I'm hoping that this is something that can be encouraging to you. Four practical actions. Pray, prepare, plan, proclaim. Pray. What were the disciples doing at the beginning of this passage? They were praying. Who's the one that's in control? Who's the one that can bring all the details into into where they need to be? Who can open doors? Who can plan that there will be all of these people, almost probably, it's possible that in Jerusalem at this time, there was a million people. Who is in control of all that? God is. So pray. Pray for boldness. Pray for opportunities then prepare. Often we don't take advantage of the opportunities that are already there. The reality is it's not like, oh, well, there's just been no opportunity to share the gospel. I know for my own life, it's I've ignored the opportunities. And many of the times the reason we ignore them is because we don't feel prepared. Do you know how to give a reason for the hope that you have in Christ? We've given this book out before. 
I would encourage you, if you don't have it, I put some, out, some more right there in the back. Read through this. If you don't know what the gospel is, and you're like, no, I, I've placed my faith in Jesus, but I don't know as I could share this. I don't know as I could proclaim Christ accurately. Read this. Another great way to prepare, share the gospel with someone who already knows the gospel. Hey, this is how I understand the gospel. Would you listen to me share this with you? Can you tell me if there's something that I'm missing that I would need to share so that others might hear the majesty of Christ? Prepare. Don't just pray about it. Prepare to actually do it. Plan. One of our biggest faults, and and again, I'm speaking primarily for myself, is that I'm like, well, yeah, I mean, if God just drops people right in front of me, then I'll do it. We have 80 years on this life in order to establish relationships, to chip away, to work and say, look, I am putting in motion right now a plan in order that I might proclaim Christ. Is that worthy of us spending our time on? Uh, I'm just asking you, don't raise your hand. Don't just in your own self right now. What are you doing that is part of a plan that is meant to lead you to proclaiming Christ to someone who does not know Jesus? Right now, think about in your own life, how many things can you think of? Oh no, the reason I do this is that I might proclaim Christ. The list is pitiful on my part. And this passage is convicting. Finally, proclaim. Do it. Pray. Prepare. Plan. Proclaim. Oh, the majesty of this pivotal moment. Be in awe at the perfect unfolding of God's perfect plan. Take heart. Take heart in God's promise, God's plan, God's provision, God's power. Then take action. Take action as we strive to proclaim Christ. Pray, prepare, plan, proclaim. God provides the spirit so that in his power, we would proclaim Christ.